Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and the White House Farm podcast. Today's episode is the first of a two-part conversation recorded by campaign team members Yvonne Hartley and Emma Morris, who will be discussing the inaccuracies in a documentary made by Mindhouse Productions called The Bambers, Murder at the Farm. The four-part documentary had an inexperienced producer, Florence Barrow, who constructed a program using interviews or talking heads, those offering their opinion. The main issue here was that there was little focus on facts, case material, statements given to the police, interviews, action reports, forensic reports, or forensic scientist accounts, or even laboratory records. The discussion moves on to why Jeremy Bamber, his solicitor, Mark Newby, and the campaign team didn't participate in the programme. And this is explained with regards to the current criminal complaint about stolen crime scene photographs of the deceased family which are in the possession of a police officer and were seen in the programme. Yvonne explains how the campaign came to learn that the director, an unseasoned Lottie Gammon, had been indiscreet about her views on Jeremy's guilt. The podcast goes on to discuss Mindhouse's treatment of Yvonne, which raises serious issues about the treatment of women by the production. Next, consideration is given to the number of times the rifle was loaded and to the qualifications of Malcolm Fletcher, the unqualified prosecution expert who carried out ballistics tests. The repeated interference of Essex police in the judicial process is raised, in particular the recent efforts of DSI Ainsley to approach the Criminal Cases Review Commission and influence them in their decision-making by submitting a forensic report by one of his acquaintances. Moreover, Ainsley's blatant possession of photographs of the dead Bamba family at the scene which he showed on the programme, is addressed within the context of law and ethics. Further concerns are raised about a key investigation prior to Ainsley taking over the case, which stated clearly that all the evidence suggested Sheila had killed the family. The changing evidence caught on camera of one of the first police officers on the scene, P.S. Bewes, alongside his colleague, P.C. Mile, is covered. This is in regard to the movement they saw in the window of the main bedroom on the night in question while they were outside with Jeremy Bamber. Jeremy's main alibi is also discussed. The phone call made by his father 10 minutes before Jeremy's. The police officer who took Jeremy's call insisted that there was only one call which came from Jeremy and this is something that is vehemently disputed. What the programme didn't discuss were the major discrepancies in this log which distinguished between the two calls and even the fact that a car had dispatched to the scene a minute before Jeremy Bamber called the police. Also featured is the reason why police timed the travel from the farm to Jeremy's home on a bicycle in anticipation that Jeremy could have made the two calls which they dispute could only have been one. Jeremy Bamber's extended family and the beneficiaries of the estate who found the silencer in a gun cupboard four days after the shootings are discussed. The documentary included an interview with Jeremy's cousin, David Bowflower, and there is further explanation of the circumstances when the silencer was found and issues surrounding the theft of property from White House Farm and from June Bamber's body. This evidence concludes with a summary of documented and new forensic evidence available to the Mindhouse production, which was ignored and the gratuitous use of the photographs which included the bodies of the Bamba family for entertainment. A more valuable programme could have been made if the issue of the movement of the bodies by police for training purposes had been addressed in regard to their accuracy as a record of what happened at the scene. This episode today we wanted to address the recent Mound House series 
which has been shown on Mev TV and on Sky. And there are a lot of anomalies that arose during the program, which we wish to put right in the public domain. So, Emma, did you actually watch the program? I did. So, this was the one called uh, The Bamba's Murder at the Farm, wasn't it? Well. Yeah, so, um, well, I mean, for me, they just seemed to allow people to kind of talk and talk, say whatever they wanted, but, but go completely unchallenged, which, given that Mindhouse did have uh, free reign to all the evidence, that was, that was quite disappointing. And I think, consequently, they, they didn't make a balanced programme. I mean, they could have made something quite thought-provoking and something special had they, had they challenged people in terms of what they were saying. But if, if I'm honest, it was, just, it was just a bit of a disappointment. Um, just underwhelming. I thought the so, same as well. It was just a lot of a lot of faces giving their own opinions rather than be factually based on any evidence whatsoever. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So, so I think it's right um, and fair that we kind of address some of those anomalies in the program today. And absolutely. I think it's important to highlight those sort of every issue that we raise um, and address is just taken from the case material, isn't it? It's all provable. Yeah, we don't assert anything in the public domain that's not coming from the case material. We don't speculate, we don't use guesswork, and we don't give our own opinions. Everything that we assert on the podcasts and uh, in discussions is from the case material. So people can be assured that it is the facts that were given to the police as the case has progressed. And those documents were released to us in 2011. So it's from that material that everything we say, we, we've been able to achieve the truth. Oh, brilliant. Okay, should we kick off with the first, the first question then? Yeah, the first question that has arisen. Okay, so why, why did the campaign team not take part in the programme? We did originally take part in the programme. We were approached by Nancy Strang, who is Louis Theroux's wife in 2019, with regards to making an unbiased showing both sides programme. So what she expressed in that they were going to show all the facts of the case, as well as all the new evidence, which was asserted to us time and again, Mm. we could talk about the evidence. We originally thought, do you know what? We we need to do this. We need the evidence in the public domain to as wide an audience as possible. So we agreed to work with them. We did so. Personally, myself, I did hundreds of hours talking to them on the telephone, on Zoom meetings. They came to my house twice. I went filming with them. So we were fully engaging with them. Except every time I tried to talk about the evidence on camera, something would happen and they would say, oh, no, 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 we haven't time for that now. We'll do that later. And so a full day filming with them, I was never got to speak about one piece of evidence. It was basically just tell us about this, tell us about that, but nothing new. Every time I tried to assert, yes, but this is what we know now, Mm. it got stopped. I was assured that they would do more filming with me to use Mm. evidence, but actually they had no intention whatsoever of doing that. We have a lot of media contacts and a lot of industry contacts. We were contacted by one of our industry contacts who told us that the director had been going around the office saying, Jeremy's guilty, Jeremy's guilty. They had no intention of making a balanced programme, that they were going to use crime scene photographs 
on the program which they've got from a, a source that we were questioning and that it wasn't going to be the program the original estate tours it was going to be uh, Lottie we did have a Zoom meeting with Flo Barrow and Lottie Gammon to ask them these questions and raise our concerns we were told they were just sat there giggling to be honest and it, they weren't taken seriously and we decided that you know, we, were, we, we had to withdraw, especially regarding the photographs, because we have a criminal complaint at the moment, which involves the disclosure of material to journalists and to the media from certain members of FC's police that we have never had access to. So we can't really make a criminal complaint and then we seem to take part in the programme using the images that we've made a complaint about. We I wouldn't ever endorse any crimes in photographs should be shown on the screen whatsoever and you know, there were other issues that arose as well yeah well they certainly use crime scene photos in, in that absolutely what's the, there's something i don't know whether you want to talk about there's something about the bed it seems a little bizarre the bed. well i couldn't quite believe this during the filming at this cottage which looked like White House Farm, if I'm honest, I was asked to move into a bedroom because the light was better, which I thought was a little bit odd, but it was a bit of a grim day and raining, so I thought, well, okay, I suppose cameraman knows best. And till Flo Barrow said to me, please sit on the bed. And I'd already arranged that Jeremy would ring me while I was there so that they could film me talking to Jeremy. So please sit on the bed and wait for your call for Jeremy. No. And I, yes. And I was like, pardon? So sit on the bed, hold the phone in your hand and wait for Jeremy to ring. And when he rings, say, oh, hello, Jeremy. I said, no, I'm not doing that. Why do you want me to sit on a bed? Yeah. Oh, well, well, it's just the lighting. I said, no, it's not the lighting. There's a chair there. So anyway, because in little days, that was another issue that, you know, certainly raised concerns. We were always depicted in the media as being like, you know, the freaky fan club and, and these women who all in awe of Jeremy and what. And they want me, a professional, who's worked on this campaign for 11 years now, to sit on a bed and wait for a telephone call from him. It was not happening at I do, all. I do wonder if, if it had been um, a male campaigner, whether they would have asked that male campaigner to sit on a bed and wait for Jeremy's call. That's, yeah, they, that's a red flag, isn't it? They didn't ask Mark Newby to sit on a bed when they filmed with him <laughs> anyway. So, but, I mean, I mean, you know, that was another concern we raised with them. And we did actually have an email from Aaron Fellows who his partner in Madhouse Productions, who actually said, we can assure you that there was absolutely no intention to present you as being unprofessional. Really? That's exactly the intention they had. It's exactly the intention. They wanted a piece of film of a woman that's not doing a jewelry Muckford, wasn't it? On the bed. Waiting for Jeremy to ring. I mean, how ridiculous. So that was another factor why we talked about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, very concerning in terms of the way that they will 
that they can manipulate and make you look however they want you to look and that that for me would certainly have been a red flag i would have run a mile so i think absolutely the campaign team did the right thing by backing out yeah. i mean it's just highlights the manipulation and abuse of women doesn't it that you know people think that it is acceptable to treat a woman that way and to manipulate what's going to be shown on camera to the detriment of that woman whoever it may be i mean it's just completely wrong and more disappointing was that it was a woman uh, that asked us to do it yes it was when we did uh, we asked them about it on a live zoom um, they said it was they tried to defer from it and the, in the end they said oh well it was the cameraman's idea which is even worse i mean they were trying to you know explain <laughs> it but made it even worse cameraman's in charge then yeah cameraman's in charge yeah and the cameraman must obviously have been sexist if he wanted to do this so i mean it's just not right is it no no absolutely not excellent Okay, so next question. Um, there was a demonstration by Malcolm Fletcher, who um, I believe was the ballistics expert for the prosecution at trial. Uh, yeah, around loading the gun and very shaky hand, trying to really push those bullets in and um, saying that, you know, it was very difficult to do. And Sheila, her fingernails were pristine. And so, um, you know, that demonstrates, I guess, that she wouldn't have been able to, to load that gun. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it did actually say that 25 shots were fired as well and they all hit the target. And yeah. Gave this very visual demonstration, shaking, <laughs> using this force to get these bullets in. But it's just ridiculous. I mean, if you use Essex Police's numbers, we know that Jeremy filled the magazine. He had no, never disputed that he filled the magazine when he was going out to try to shoot the rabbits earlier in the evening. So that's 10. There's 10 mag uh, bullets in the, in the magazine to start with. Now, we know that one was in the breach, so that means that there was nine in the magazine, one in the loaded, ready to fire in the gun. So 25 shots were fired. That means that there was 15 bullets left that would have counted that because the gun was found to be empty when the police eventually looked at it and said it was empty. So 15 bullets does not mean that Sheila loaded it to full capacity twice. She could have loaded <laughs> eight bullets on one occasion, seven on another. She could have loaded nine bullets on one, thought that's a bit tricky, and loaded, loaded six on the next occasion. We don't know. But it's certainly not true that Sheila loaded it twice, as he asserted in court, with 10 bullets each time, which she... They said it was impossible for her to have done. She couldn't have done it. So that's complete rubbish anyway, because it's very easy. They don't make a magazine for a rifle. The, the, the person who's using it struggles to load. They don't no. make it 10 capacity if the final two are so difficult to get in. You know, yeah, that's why, crazy. why I say it's 10 capacity, then say it's 8 capacity. It's you know another red I mean? herring, isn't it? It's no just sense. another... Another pointless point. It's an absolute um, red herring. Yeah, yeah. So, so she could have ultimately just put seven bullets in if, if for whatever reason she did find it too difficult to load the last two. She, she could have just put seven or eight, and it would have. Oh, she, she, she could have loaded it twice with eight bullets and 
and seven bullets. We just don't yeah. know, but their argument, it doesn't hold any water whatsoever. Malcolm Fletcher also said on the programme that Sheila's fingernails were pristine, and it did show a photograph of her thumbnail, not fingers, just her thumbnail. Yeah, I noticed now, that. We've, we've actually enlarged some of the images from the scene and from the post-mortem of Sheila's hands as far as we could. Um, these are very limited because we don't have any photographs at all of her left hand. So we only have photographs of her right hand. And on them, you can see that the nail varnish she's got on has been on for a considerable time. They weren't well manicured, as the police said. Um, there's a lot of nail growth underneath the nail varnish. And at the end, it's all chipped and splintered. The really? nails aren't pristine whatsoever. No. Wow. But, of course, that all comes back to him asserting that she must have loaded the magazine with 10 bullets twice. So, firstly, the numbers don't add up because that would have been 30 shots fired, according to them. And also, it would have been that um, she would have struggled to do it. And she, she didn't, there was no need for it to load it to capacity each time. There's no proof that she did. Wow. So, it's quite, it's quite a simple answer, really, when you, when you look at it logically. Um, yes. was it? Was there something else about the type of bullets he was using in the demonstration, beeswax, compared to the bullets that we used that night? It was, yes, but the people don't seem to realise there were different bullets that would fit that rifle. So the ones in question were Ely 0.22 subsonic hollow point bullets. Now, they did have a coating on, but it wasn't a waxy coating that would leave any sort of residue at all. Because can you imagine a hunter going out to shoot rabbits and leaving a slimy beeswax coating over your fingers. You won't be able to, your fingers would be slipping everywhere. Yeah. It's just, just ridiculous. Um, it, gunshot it's residue. They never even tested Sheila for gunshot residue. They tested I mean, her lead levels. It astounds me that, you know, a, a forensic uh, ex expert that's being used in, in a programme like that, it, you know, does a demonstration with different bullets. Well, it's like Malcolm Fletcher wasn't even, shouldn't have been even classed as an expert at the trial. He didn't even get his diploma in forensic ballistics till after the trial. The evidence he gave was questioned by defence ballistic experts who were never called to give evidence. But they yeah. actually said, one of them, Major Mead, said he should have lost his job over the okay. evidence that he gave during the trial, because it was just not correct. The jury were misinformed. But also, Fletcher admitted at the trial that he'd only once handled that particular type of rifle before, or .22 semi-automatic, and that was when he was a child. No. So how can he be a ballistics expert on a rifle he's no experience of? Using the incorrect bullets, he's not giving factual evidence. He misinterpreted how many times Sheila would have had to load the magazine. And, and the, her nails were pristine, immaculate and, and well manicured. It's just all lies. Yeah, he went and challenged on the, on the um, documentary. Yeah, well, nobody's going to challenge him, are they? Because 
nobody wants to. This is the police angle, the crimes angle all the time that these mm. programmes want to assert. And they're, are they afraid of showing the facts? I don't know, but all the facts are documented. They only need to know. Well, well, thankfully, um, you're able to, to put it right today. Absolutely, thanks, Emma. Okay, so next next question I have is regarding um, the appearance on the documentary of former DSI Ainsley, who um, who I believe took over the investigation on the 7th September 1985. Is that right? And That's correct, yeah. I think the extended family were, were, were quite active in contacting him um, around that time as well in terms of their suspicions of, of Jeremy. So what, why do you think he's decided to appear on a documentary now? Um, well, dear, former DSIAs has always been vocal in the media about Jeremy, about the campaign, about the fact he asserts Jeremy is guilty. It's, it's just ridiculous. I think why he's appearing now is partly because he knows the submissions are now in the Criminal Case Review Commission. Right. So this is his attempt to try to undermine those submissions. He cannot undermine them because everything in the submissions is taken from police documentation. So nothing Ainsley says publicly or even to the Criminal Cases Review Commission would have any impact whatsoever on the grounds that we've submitted because they are documented fact. Uh, I would love for the Criminal Case Review Commission to actually interview him about certain things that he's done in the case. Now, it's not all public, but Ainsley is aware that there is an active criminal complaint against him and certain other police officers in the case, which we made in 2020. So this was following the realisation that this is because it came to our attention that he was providing case documentation with Holmes box reference numbers covers on them and crime scene photographs to Caroline Lee. We have that in evidence. We have photographs of the said documents. And so he was challenged by this. The CPS actually took this up in 2020 when we were doing a judicial review. And they asked Essex Police to follow up on this, see what was true, see what was untrue and everything. DCI Jennings of Essex Police went to interview Ainsley. And Ainsley actually admitted to him that he did actually still have documents. He admitted he had provided them to Caroline Lee. He also admitted that he had destroyed quite a number of documents in 2010. Now, we don't believe he was being honest because the hundreds and hundreds of documents he provided to Caroline Lee, which were photographed, weren't the six documents which he showed DCR Jennings that he had. So he was being deliberately elusive and evasive towards his own force, Essex Police, when they were investigating it. Consequently, they came back and said, no, I don't think he's doing anything wrong. They were his own personal papers. But they really weren't his own personal papers that he was providing to an author. And then later, his colleague, and we've also got the criminal complaint out, was providing them to ITV in a pub in broad daylight. 
So this includes crime scene photographs. So why would, why would the why would these police officers still have documentation in their personal personal possession of a case that happened in 1985? That that feels really wrong, and um, I think that would be very wrong. surprising, uh, you know, for the public to 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 be aware of that that seems okay. It's extremely wrong, Emma. I mean, it's not only admitted to documents, he admitted that he had exhibits. Now, what those exhibits are, we simply have no idea at all. That's so outrageous. complaint is asking, we want this, we want this, like an itinerary of everything that he has got. But with so many important key documents missing, for example, there was a report written uh, after an investigation by DCI Keneally. Now that's dated the 6th of September 1985. So Keneally's report, so this is the day before Ainsley took over, that concluded that the evidence indicated that Sheila was responsible. That's documented in the documents that we've got now. That is fact. Mm. Except DCI Ainsley in his statement to the Metropolitan Police in 2002 hand wrote that out, stating about Keneally's report, put a big black cross through it, and didn't include that in his final statement. Oh, so why? Has Ainsley got Keneally's report and the evidence he used that gave them the conclusion that Sheila was responsible? Where is that report? You know, we've asked the police for it. They're not giving it us, so who's got it? Has he got the original call log? made from Neville to Essex Police. Essex Police tell us they can't find the originals. Somebody's got the originals, is it Ainsley? How, how many documents has he got that we've been seeking that are of key importance in relation to the blood aspects of the case, the silence and the nightdress? There are so many missing that when we go to the police and actually ask for them, they can't find them. So it begs the question, who's got them then? Oh, it's, it's completely unacceptable, isn't it? Absolutely unacceptable. Uh, another thing Ainsley, Ainsley said, which um, <laughs> was quite interesting, and I'll, I'll ask, he said the, um, the, cam the campaign is costing taxpayers money and the lawyers are getting rich. It's certainly so we, say yeah, that. How are we costing the taxpayers, Yvonne? Well, we don't cost the taxpayers a single penny and never have done. The campaign is self-funded. We rely on donations which the public and supporters can donate to us in order to, that obviously allows us to pay for forensic reports which are needed and vital administration costs such as postage to, you know, to, man to maintain our data files. But we, we've we're not a charity. We don't have charity status. We act for an individual. And you cannot get charitable status for acting for an individual. Therefore, we get no money at all from the taxpayer. So it's also asserted that the lawyers are getting rich. Well, our lawyers aren't getting rich at all. They've worked consistently pro bono on Jeremy's case. So we have occasionally had to pay them for a matter of urgency that may have arisen um, or some in-depth work we've needed them to do. But we've taken that from 
the funds that have been donated to us over the years by supporters. So <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I mean, he also said, we'd all be, oh, oh, they just come up with a load of old nonsense and make it up. And it's like, really, we don't make it up at all. It's not documented. It the submissions are absolutely robust. And, you know, I'll, I'll see Mr. Ainsley once Jeremy's free and we might be in the court of law itself. Who knows? Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Well deserved after hearing some of the underhand things that he's been he's been doing and unapologetically and, and so um, but it's, not, it's not just now though Emma it's like in the past every time Jeremy has had an appeal in Ainsley has tried to interfere in due process so he's had articles produced in the media where he's undermining Jeremy he's had he's sent his own forensic reports to the Criminal Cases Review Commission sort of Jumping on the assertion from things we've put in the media that we are going to actually apply there and then to the CCRC on the evidence such as the blood on Shearer's foot. Mm. He, he got a forensic report using a police officer friend, sent it to the CCRC to say there's no blood on Shearer's foot. Except the, the photographs we've got show blood on Shearer's foot. So what photographs is Ainsley looking at? What photographs did he provide to his guy? Because we haven't got them. We if haven't got those not, photographs. If he's not concerned about um, the campaign team and feels that all we're doing is, is making stuff up, why, why would he go to such lengths? It sounds to me like this is a, this is a very worried, worried man. Um, but if he hasn't done anything wrong and he didn't act um, in any way unethical or illegal, and if he told the truth all the way throughout the investigation of Jeremy, he wouldn't have anything to worry about, would he? No, he absolutely wouldn't. But I think that DSA Ainsley must be aware. I'm sure he would have been contacted now by the uh, Independence Police Organisation. I'm sure he will know. It's not just that issue that we've complained about. There are multiple issues. There are multiple issues in how he's manipulated the case. I can't go into detail at the moment. It is all documented. It is in submissions. So it's up to them, and they will have to ask him the questions about it. Yeah, they will have to ask him. So, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to be too vocal at this stage, but in the future, I will be able to tell everybody exactly what he did. Well, I certainly look forward to to when that can be made public. Okay, so um, PS or former PS Views appeared on the programme. Um, he's appeared on several documentaries, um, each one seemingly giving a different version in each documentary of um, who saw what and when in the window. Um, uh, and in this one was no exception in terms of the, he, had, he added a, a new little spin on it. He was walking forward and then backwards and then forwards again and it was just an optical illusion that way um so that that was that was a new a new spin on um on what he said i think he's given he's given multiple versions of what was seen i mean originally he said it was the other officer who accompanied him and jeremy on the recce of the farm that saw uh, somebody in the window he said it was somebody in the window he said it was a trick of the light he said it was a shadow of the moon he said it was a reflection in the window it's like completely ridiculous. 
I mean, at trial, he was asked by Rivlin after Jeremy passed a note to Rivlin to say, mm. ask him about the movement that we saw. And Rivlin wasn't the best defence lawyer in the world, simply said, oh, I believe he saw a movement. Was it a trick of the light? I mean, just okay. give them the yeah, answer yeah. then, you know? So, but we have got um, new evidence about that now. And as well, it's like Pierce Buse said that when they arrived at the scene, that as a result of what Jeremy had told him, that his sister was a nutter and was capable of shooting people and that she had a gun, that he rang out the firearms team. Well, that's completely not correct. Because okay. the sequence of events, as recorded on police logs, and as recorded by Abuse, Mayo and Saxby in their witness statements, is that, yes, they did have a talk to Jeremy to find out about, you know, what was going on, what he knew of what was going on. Then Jeremy, P.S. Buse and P.C. Mayo did a record of the house now, it was during this wrecking that the movement was seen in the bedroom window. As a result of that, they all dived behind a hedge and then ran back to the police car. And it was at that stage, and it's documented, that Buse contacted HQ, made a situation report and called for firearms assistance. So why is he now asserting that was one of the very first things that he did? He didn't at all. The only reason they called finance assistance was because they saw movement. I mean, can you imagine? The, by the time they got there in that police car, if June Neville and Sheila were sat around the kitchen table having a cup of tea, all calmed down and everybody talking, they could have only known that if they'd looked through the window. They knew that wasn't the situation because they'd seen Sheila moving about in the bedroom with a gun. Yeah. So they knew. Wait a minute, you know, I mean, Jeremy's always, he said at the same, go and knock on the door. But they saw the movement, they knew Sheila was alive, active, and had the gun in the hand. That's why they call the firearms team. Yeah, they wouldn't call such drastic action because of a trick of the light or the way the moon was against the window. It's, it's, it's absurd, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, as well, firearms teams are very expensive to call to a scene you don't do it you know you're going to get in such trouble by your superior officers if those firearms units had abandoned what they were doing been woken up in their beds senior officers firearms commanders woken up in their beds to get their units together to attend a scene to get there and they're all having a cup of tea no they knew Sheila was alive they knew Sheila was active with a gun in the house and it, it's also just occurred to me, so, so he says now in his, in his latest version of, of events that he walked forward and so, thought he saw movement, then retraced his steps, then walked forward again and saw the exact same movement and then realised, oh, it's just a trick of the light. But if you're saying that, that it was at that point they, they, they ran back and called for the firearms assistance, he, he already knew it was a trick of the light. So why would he have run back and called firearms assistance at that point? It just makes absolutely, absolutely. No, no sense whatsoever, does it? Absolutely. And the, I mean, the words from PC Saxby, who was sat in the control vehicle on Pages Lane, were after about five minutes, 
all three came running back to the car. You don't run back because you've seen, oh, the moon's moved. Let quick, let's run. Let's get the well, firearms yeah. team out. So why did they run in the first place? If it was, if he, he if he'd have realised at that moment, oh no, it's fine, guys. It's just a trick of the light. Well then, why did you run back? Exactly. Like, they'd have continued the recce of the house, and they'd yeah. have probably looked through the windows, and they'd have probably walked walked back to the car, or however they got back to the car, they would have continued their recce anyway. But so you another know, officer that just yeah, that just wasn't challenged, um, unfortunately, on the program was just allowed to you know, say whatever he wanted, completely Well, that's it, but, but, you know, that's why it's so dangerous, these programmes, because the public believe it, and the public are being misled time and time and time again, and it's not right. Because, yeah. you know, not only were the jury misled, the public now, 36 years later, are still being misled by police officers who just cannot and are not willing to stand up and go, do you know what? I need to tell the truth. Yeah. You know, do they think that people are so stupid that they can't read this for themselves in documents and see, well, you are making a, a fraudulent claim here. You, What you are saying is complete nonsense. Yeah, but, it's astounding, isn't it, that, you know, that P.S. Hughes didn't perhaps look back on some of his previous appearances on, docu uh, on documentaries and um, thought, oh, well, better, I better not change my story again. But... <laughs> Well, exactly. You think at least if they, but well, that's the problem with lies, isn't it? You forget what you've said before. Yeah. So, so if you're telling the truth, it's always the truth, and it'll never change. Just interesting. Um, just one last question on that. Then, um, has Jeremy's version of events um, around what was seen in the window changed over the course? His version has never changed. Jeremy's version has never changed. He said they saw a person in the window. Framed in the doorway, moved from left to right in front of the window. That has never changed. But interestingly, at trial, you see, Jeremy was never asked about it because his defence QC at the time, Geoffrey Rivlin, Jeremy wanted to speak about this in the court. And he said to Jeremy numerous times in private, you, you can't, we're not here to prosecute Sheila. We are here to defend you. And so a lot of this evidence never even got put to the jury. You know, Jeremy could have given his own version of events. Niall wasn't even asked about it. The only person asked about it was Buse, who then was given the response. By oh, a trick of the light is ridiculous. It, you know, it, you can't... How, how could he defend Jeremy without demonstrating the perpetrator um, was, was Sheila? No, exactly. But... They were his words. Yeah. Okay, so next question um, I've got is around the two phone calls issue. Um, the PC West appeared on the, on the documentary and he said, that, you know, there wasn't two phone calls. There was one phone call. He merely noted the time down wrong because he was young and inexperienced and, you know, seemingly was unable to read the correct time for whatever reason. Um, and also that, if Malcolm Bonnet had taken a call from Neville, then he would have told West about that call. So, so, so why why does the campaign team assert that there that there were definitely two calls, one from Neville and one from Jeremy? Well, we don't just assert it; we can actually absolutely prove it. I mean, also, I'll just start by saying I find it very interesting that 
PC West also knows that we've made submissions to the Criminal Cases Review Commission in March, and this is also the first time he's ever spoken out about oh, this issue, which I found that very interesting as well. Well, the fact of the matter is there were two phone calls made. Now, putting Malcolm Bonnet, who was a civilian radio operator, putting him to one side for the moment, the, the log that we've got of Jeremy's call is at 3.36am, and he gives details on his log, stating, father has just rung me, my sister, Sheila has gone crazy and has got hold of the gun. So on Jeremy's log, it notes that Sheila is 27 years of age. Now, when we go across now and look at Malcolm Bonnet's log, he notes down, now this information, according to Essex Police, was passed by radio from West to Bonnet. So I don't know what was quite going on in Essex Police at that time, because everyone seems very incompetent, because everything they say is due to human error. So the differences that we've got are, in Neville's call, at 3.26, he referred to his daughter going berserk. In Jeremy's log, 3.36, he said that his father told him his sister had gone crazy. So this daughter, sister, berserk, crazy, all different words. In the log of Neville's call, she was ages 26, and on Jeremy's call, she was 27. On Neville's call, he said, that Sheila had hold of one of his guns. On Jeremy's call, he said his father told him she had hold of the gun. Interestingly, Bonnet notes down on his log that a call was dispatched to the scene at 3.35 a.m. This is a minute prior to Jeremy's call. So, right. I mean, they're the quite psychic, Caressic's police as well. You know, I mean, they can anticipate what's going to happen a full minute before it does. Yeah. But, of, of major importance, and one of the reasons we can prove that there were two calls, is that analysis of PC West evidence says that he spoke to officers himself at Witham Police Station at 3.30am by force radio, and he was alerting them about the unfolding events. And he also contacted them at 3.37 by telephone and informed them that the officer that he spoke to, that Jeremy was still on the line, and in court, he said he, Jeremy had been on the line for a minute before he contacted Whitton. And so this can only mean and confirm and clarify that Jeremy's call was at 3.36am. And therefore, at the trial, the judge, I don't really want to go in much into the trial, but the judge misdirected the jury by saying they had to take Jeremy's call at being at 3.26. Now, it's just very, very simple. People will argue with us that these two pieces of paper that we've got, we know that he was writing information down as he was given the information. Now, later on throughout the morning, what people don't seem to realise is that Bonnet's log continued. So every time he was given information over the phone, he would write something down on the log, and this continued throughout the messages from officers who were at the scene. So it initially started with the information he was given from West about Mr. Bamba, White House Farm, that his daughter had gone berserk and had hold of one of his guns. So that was the first call at 3.26. Then lower down on Bonnet's log, he then adds 
information from Son of Mr. Bamba. So this is relating to Jeremy's 336 call because he didn't have more information. So it, it is a rolling log, is Ponit's log. He's recorded on there that a, lot, a car was first dispatched to the scene or asked to attend the scene at 3.35, as I've said before, before Jeremy's call. The simple fact of the matter is West cannot be honest because the, the one document that's missing, because we know that West took the call. There are various reasons why we know that. We know that West took the call from Neville. And so all they've done, all Essex police have done, is get that one piece of paper put it to the side, never to be given to us, and they've given us Jeremy's call at what West took and Bonnet's log, so his radio log, so that that appears that they can say to us, oh, well, actually, no, this is recording the same call. It is not. There are more ways we can prove it, which I can't go into at the moment, but I will do in the near future. But another reason regarding West it's very interesting. After there is evidence at the trial, Ainsley, who we already know is hostile towards the defence, Ainsley wanted Jeremy imprisoned at all costs. So Ainsley actually wrote a memo. And in this memo was to Chief Superintendent Harris on the 3rd of October 1986. And it says, this officer, and he's talking about PC West, was required to give evidence in the case of Bamba on the 2nd of October 1986. While he presented a smart appearance and spoke firmly and directly to the court, not once did he refer to the judge as my lord. And in fact, not once did he complete his evidence or cross-examination with sir. So, okay, that's like, you know, just formality and, and the lack of correct presentation by West. But this is very interesting because Ainsley then says, in addition, he gave the appearance of not knowing his evidence and had to be reminded by the defence counsel of the contents of his statement. Overall, his outward appearance was spoilt by his lack of respect for the court and his obvious lack of preparation for the occasion. Now, that screams to me that West was so apprehensive at the trial, didn't know what on earth to say, couldn't say that he'd had two calls, so blundered his way through, even yeah. causing concern with, it, with the senior officer that maybe had immediately raised his worries that, hang on a minute, the jury's going to suspect what he said is true, because West you know, obviously hadn't stuck to the agenda as yeah. as he was instructed to do so before the trial. And I just think that's really interesting and that's a fact that won't be known to many people that Ainsley did make this complaint the day after. You know, I mean, such a knee-jerk reaction to one of your police officers' evidence in court and saying he obviously hadn't prepared his evidence. I mean... I'll, I mean, leave, I'll leave people to make their own minds of what that means. All he has to do is tell the truth and you're, you should be fully prepared, and say, you know, in a, in a court, shouldn't you? If you're, if you're going in there just to answer questions and be truthful, then you shouldn't blunder through your evidence, should you? It shouldn't be any need. Okay. But if West had been, you see what, if West had been honest 
and he had told the court, I did take two phone calls, which is irrefutable. We, we have multiple ways we can prove that now, not just with the times he telephoned with the police station. So, you know, it's, it's irrefutable evidence. If he would have stood up in, in the 2nd of October, the very day the trial began, and told the truth, that would be it. That would be it, because that is Jeremy's cast iron alibi. It's close to the court, the case would have been over. He would yeah. have lost his job, because the Mainson would have made sure he was sacked. But this is yeah. a year later, and he wasn't even prepared. When challenged, he didn't know what to say, so blundered his way through his evidence. And I think it's worth um, worth mentioning as well that that do you have evidence that police officers tried to get from White House Farm to Jeremy's cottage some two, three miles away in the time it would take to make the two phone calls? Um, and they couldn't do it, could they? No, they couldn't do it. What we believe is, you see, because this is another mysterious thing that Essex Police did, because they said that Jeremy travelled from White House Farm to his cottage on his mother's bicycle in the pitch black of night, over all the rivets on the harvested fields and along this dangerous stony gravelly seawall with ditches at either side to get from my house farm to his cottage, they timed the route. They timed the route in daylight because they needed to see if Jeremy could make that journey in 10 minutes. It couldn't be done in 10 minutes. The nearest a police officer could do in daylight because he timed four different routes. A police officer on a proper bicycle for a man, not a woman's little sit-up-and-beg little shopping <laughs> bike, could not do it in less than 16 minutes. That's the fastest he could do it in daylight. But had they been able to do it in eight minutes, nine minutes, or ten minutes, we can be assured that they would have said that Jeremy made both phone calls from White House Farm at 3.26, from his cottage at 3.36. That's the only reason they timed the routes. There is no other explanation why they timed the routes, and they've never offered another explanation why they timed the routes, because nobody saw Jeremy. But they wouldn't have needed to even do that. If, if what they're saying is absolutely true, and there's only one phone call, um, and it's just the, the two logs were worded differently, whatever it was that, that, that Wes said, they would never have even needed to to try that because there was only one phone call. So what was what was the point? Well, exactly. So that's proof in and of itself that there were there were two phone calls. <laughs> otherwise, why two try, phone calls. Exactly. Why try and get Jeremy, you know, from one property to the other within ten minutes? When they found they couldn't yeah. do it, simple. Hide that one piece of paper that West filled in regarding Neville's call. Now West daren't be honest about this. I mean, he's going to get into so much trouble. So, you know, he's protecting his back now. But that evidence we have, which isn't public, is with the Criminal Cases Review Commission. And I'm sure the Criminal Cases Review Commission will do their job correctly. They will interview West and they will put this new evidence to him. And let's hope he's honest. He doesn't need to be honest, he can continue lying because the evidence refutes what he's saying anyway. So yeah. it'll be interesting what comes in the coming few months. 
I mean, there is no, nothing really, you know, in their in their own actions that points to this only being one one phone call. As I say, you know, it's a slam dunk with the let's try and get from White House Farm to um, Jeremy's cottage in less than ten minutes. If there, <laughs> there was only one phone exactly. call, exactly. I mean, irrespective of the fact that they knew Jeremy's car hadn't moved all night, so they couldn't take that into effect because his neighbours had seen his car outside mm -hmm. his house from when he arrived home from work. The only way they could even test this theory was, you know, on a lady's bicycle. I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. In a wetsuit as well, don't forget. Well, yes, in his wetsuit, yes, but it's just ridiculous. It is. Absolutely ridiculous. I think, yeah. Well, I think that covers it for me for the for the phone call. Um, Fantastic. I hope that it answers a lot of listeners' questions as well. Indeed. You know, because there's this evidence there we've never made public before about what Ainsley said about West's attitude. So it befuddles me really how they've gone, gone on a television programme and just come out asserted these facts which aren't facts they're actually just supporting their own watching their own backs and making sure that they've covered themselves but they actually haven't covered themselves whatsoever i think they made it worse for themselves to be honest i think they've definitely made it worse for themselves in time to come so um david bowflower appeared on the program now for those that don't know, David Bowflower is um, Jeremy's cousin. His parents are Robert and Pamela Bowflower. Pamela is June's sister, or was That's June. Correct. Yeah. Now I was listening to him, him talk around when they found the silencer in the cupboard, and I was really, really surprised to hear him say, "On the side, the silencer was sticky, and on the end of it was a grey hair." He did. Um, I'm confused, yeah. Yvonne. I'm very confused by that. <laughs> okay. So the fact of the matter is that there were two silences in the house. One had previously been seized by the police shortly after the raid team entered the house. We've got documented evidence regarding that. And that was also reported in the media at the time. On the 10th of August, David was in the house with his father, Robert, and with his sister, Anne Eaton. They were, in their own words, looking for clues. Uh, during the time they were at the house, David went into the gun cupboard, which was basically a, an area space under the stairs, which okay. didn't have a locked door. It was just sort of like a storage space. But there were guns all over the house. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't just all collective in that cupboard. They were all over the house, in the toilet and on the stairs and everywhere. So when they went into the cupboard, in the back of the cupboard, was a dusty cardboard box. Now inside this dusty cardboard box, he found a sound moderator. Firstly, that raises suspicion because if somebody had been in the cardboard box previously with a, a sound moderator that had been used in the incident, which is also referred to as a silencer, by the way, so depending on the terminology you want to use. So if somebody during the incident Jeremy or Sheila had gone into that cardboard box with a sound moderator, you can be assured there would not be dust on it and the dust would have been disturbed and more likely than not, there would have been blood on the exterior of that box. So that's never been addressed by anybody before as its police have never explained why. It could say it was just a box. The sound moderator that he found that day 
was, he said, very sticky, which I don't understand how we can state it was sticky because if it did have blood evidence on it, after three days after the incident, it, the blood would have dried. Of course, yeah. So how it would be sticky, I don't know. So maybe he's misremembering. What he isn't, he was quite adamant that on the end of it, he saw a, a small blob of what he said was blood and a hair. Yeah. Now this hair makes me laugh because this hair was uh, originally seen by Stan Jones when he went to collect the moderator two days later from Anne Eaton's home. And it's given to him by Peter Eaton. As D.S. Jones is looking at this moderator in front of Peter Eaton, he went, oh, look, there's a grey hair. This grey hair then mysteriously disappeared after two other police officers had seen it. And we've now found that grey hair. It's never forensically tested, never even went to the laboratory. But they used that at trial to infer that Neville was hit over the head with the rifle, with the cell moderator attached, and that this grey hair was from Neville's head. So, what really surprised me in the recent programme was that David said when he found the moderator, it had a hair on it. Hmm. Well, that's not what he said at the trial. And I can read you exactly what he did say at the trial when he was asked about this grey hair. Asked during the trial if he could recall this hair. David stated, not at the time. I have heard reference to this hair through the court and on the television news media, but I'm afraid I can't elaborate any further than that. So, he didn't see a hair. Asked further by the counsel at the trial, they said, did you notice anything adhering, sticking onto the end of the silencer? To which David answered, I know what you're going to say. I have already heard the evidence that there was a hair on the silencer and I cannot, cannot comment on that because I do not recall his hair. Wow. So all of a sudden, when it gets to a, a televised programme, he's now, his hair, he saw on the day. He didn't. So, is, he, is he telling lies now? Or was he telling lies at trial? We don't know. But I'll leave you to come to your own conclusions about that. Yeah, absolutely, you know, mind-blowing, isn't it? <laughs> I know. But you say, you, you know, when we said it before earlier, didn't we, with, with good old views, you've got to have a good memory if you're going to lie. You've got to have a good memory. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and another thing he said, which... Um, which again, I think needs addressing, is that um, Jeremy's behaviour in terms of um, selling off the family's silverware and going out partying, and you don't you don't behave like that after after something like that. Well, Jeremy wasn't going out partying. Uh, he went for meals with friends, some of whom were supportive, others, such as Julian Mugford, weren't as supportive. Um, but basically, just went out for. He wasn't partying at all. He did go on a holiday with Brett, which we'll discuss later on. But as for, I think it's important to clarify about the assertions that Jeremy was, according to Robert Bellflower, selling the family treasures, and that David brought up in this programme that Jeremy was slimming out the house, 
and selling everything to Sotheby's. It's simply not true. What we knew now now since disclosure in 2011 and from the statements and notes made by the very relatives themselves, by Robert Belfort, by David Belfort and by Anne Eaton, is that when they were in the house on the 10th of August, they were going around checking the pockets of the deceased. They were checking June's and Sheila's handbags and removing money from them. They also, Robert Belfort got Neville Bamber's wallet, which contained £400, and took the money out of it. Uh, in fact, Annie and said, you know, once they nearly got caught out over that when Jeremy was looking for the wallet. I mean, you know, that's just complete theft. But as well as that, they were, they were piling jewellery into drawers to take back to Anne's. And she even said herself, I wasn't even aware Granny Bamber's silver was here. And she, so this is Neville's mother they were talking about, took as much as they could carry, load, as well as guns, loaded them into back of Anne's car and took them to the house, as well as paintings and, and other silverware. But Jeremy found out about this and it was an agreement between Jeremy and Basilcock. And we have the statement from a man called Mr. Stancliffe who worked for Sotheby's. And he went with his assistant to White House Farm. Now, obviously, Jeremy, the first time Jeremy went into the property was at Anne's request. And it was at that time he noticed that things were missing and he had a word with Basil Cock. When Mr. Stancliffe went into the house, he actually catalogued quite a lot of items which he took possession of that day. So this included Edward Lear oil paintings, includes other oil paintings, include, included watercolour paintings, uh, clocks, candlesticks, tea sets, silver items, postage stamp collections, coins, shotguns. It contained a lot of uh, things that were valuable. Mm. And in Mr. Stankley's statement, he said, full details of these items can be obtained from Mr. Cock, because he gave him an itemized list of everything that Sotheby's took into their possession. Now, on his statement that was made on the 18th of September, 1985, he also stated, I was given the impression by Mr. Bamba that the reason for wishing to have the items at Sotheby's was that members of his family were coming to lay some form of claim on the property. So the only reason Sotheby's were involved wasn't because Jeremy was selling these products and having them auctioned off. It was for the simple reason that they needed to be protected, put into safe custody, because there was a fear that the relatives were going to be selling these items. Of I, I, I guess we don't need to take Jeremy's word for that. But, you know, if in um, Anne Eaton's own notes and statements, she's saying that they are going through, uh, you know, quite unapologetically, pockets and taking money and items so you know they the relatives themselves corroborate what jeremy told sotheby's absolutely they do absolutely because as well we've got evidence on the actual day of the tragedy within hours of jeremy learning that he's lost his entire close family that annie said to him i want your mother's engagement ring and wedding ring and a picture from the wall for my mother and he was like this is hours 
hours after he'd found out his family had died. I mean, what is that? And Anne Eaton said in evidence that the reason Jeremy wouldn't allow her to have them, didn't want anything touching in the house, was because he wanted it to be a shroud. I mean, how ridiculous. Jeremy was just watching out for his family's heirlooms that they didn't just get stolen. And for his mother's engagement and wedding ring, well, for anybody to ask for those, it's just, to, in my eyes, tantamount to, it, well, it's just ridiculous. So, but Annie did ultimately end up with the wedding and engagement ring because they were given to her by an Essex police officer after the post-mortems, and she never revealed this. It was no. kept quiet, and it was only after the disclosure of the documents in 2011 we discovered that she had been given these items. These rings were with June when she was buried, and it's like, that was devastating, to be honest. That's horrendous. Again, again, another, uh, you know, another one-sided um, look at the at the extended family in that, you know, in the programme that um, none of this, although this evidence was all available, none of it was, was raised to show, I mean, it's absolute shocking stuff, really. But it makes you wonder why, makes you wonder why the, the programme makers chose not to include this evidence because they certainly knew about it. Yeah. So why not? I mean, that obviously shows that they were not willing to prepare and present to the public a, a balanced programme because continually throughout, it was only the prosecution side. It was never, but actually this refutes what they were saying. None of that ever throughout the programme. Well, Mr. Boatflower, how do you explain this evidence that we have, the notes that um, your sister made around the reason Jeremy wanted um, valuables put into safekeeping. No, it was exactly. just, he just, you know, was selling off the silverware and that's not how you behave. And it's like he did that in terms of putting them into safekeeping because you were stealing. From exactly. But this is, again, how the public can misled and it's not fair to the public to be misled in this way. Not only is it not fair to, to Jeremy and misinterpretations that have been made throughout, they are stating this as fact. And they're being lied to. Yeah, the programme makers though are know the truth. They knew the truth. They knew. They had all this evidence and chose had told us, you know, they weren't going to show it. So, you know, we come back to the, one of the reasons why we withdrew from, from working with them because they weren't prepared to show documented facts the actual truth that would have undermined all these assertions that have been made for 36 years that mislead the public into believing that Jeremy is this horrible character that was, you know... Very obsessed, uh, yeah, all, all yeah. of that. It's absolutely wrong. So in the documentary, they did mention, didn't they, the um, something like 374,000 documents that had come to light. Um, were, were any of these actually used in the documentary? No, they weren't. And oh. we we said to them that they could have whatever evidence they wanted. The number of documents we provided to them was astounding. We had a great big file in the Dropbox with everything they wanted to question or ask us about. We provided literally thousands of documents to Madhouse. 
all that was shown in that program was the summing up, which was just presented by a barrister looking at it. So that wasn't really visual on the on the screen as it in regards to what it actually stated. But they showed half of two coal logs. So we're back to the coal logs again, but they show partial um, extract from Jeremy's call. They show partial extract from Bonnet's radio log. And that was it. I mean, they had access to literally whatever they wanted when we first started work with them. Anything. The only thing they were in that they, they actually did show was I think it's quite despicable that they showed crime scene photographs. Yes, they blurred out the figures of Neville in the kitchen. They still showed that photograph. It doesn't take a lot of imagination when they're then showing diagrams as to the position of Neville. If they'd have left it at the crime scene reconstruction, sort of plasticine figures that they kind of had of um, the deceased, that would have been all right. But what was the need to show, even though there were blurred out bodies on the screen, there was no need for that. But I mean, the picture that um, Ainsley showed that you're talking about, it, I don't know what value that, that they, you know, that was because it just showed. Oh, look at the look at the scene, and okay, what what more about it? And then there was nothing more to say. To say this evidence is X, Y, and Z. It's just look at this almost sensational. Yeah. And as well, Ainsley's attitude, I mean, when he was looking at these photographs, going, oh, poor Neville, poor, poor Neville, oh, the boy, dear, dear, dear. And it's that really, I mean, how much can you exaggerate it? It was an absolutely horrendous scene. I have seen those photographs. I was in tears. And I've seen them multiple times, and they still deeply affect me. Ainsley wasn't deeply affected by those photographs. He was trying to, to put across impression. a false impression of shock and horror to, to make it worse to like, in his implication of Jeremy, to like, well, what did poor June do to deserve that? Yes, I agree. But there was no argument that how did these photographs actually tie into what the defence is saying and how are these, these photographs depicting what truly happened on that day within mm. that house. I mean, we've got so much evidence now that the scene was mishandled by the police, that they were interfering with the scene, not maybe on purpose, but they were moving objects, they were moving the deceased. Those photographs, the first one wasn't taken till 10 o'clock in the morning. That was not the crime scene as it was seen when the right. red team entered the house. We've got the evidence, not only was the rifle moved, Sheila was moved, I mean, her arm was moved, her hand was moved. There's other items in the house that were moved before the first photograph is taken. We can prove that, we can prove Neville, the boys, June, were all moved. So the reliance that Essex Police have placed on these crime scene photographs that prove that this happened is a falsehood. It is a complete lie because the crime scene photographs weren't taken till after training exercises were conducted, we can prove that 43, 43 Emma officers were in that house before a single photograph was taken. How is that preserving the crime scene? That's crazy. How is that meaning that what the jury was shown 
our actual as that scene was because it wasn't. We've got police officers statement that are disputing the position of Sheila. Uh, the, the disputing the position of the Bible that where Sheila's head is. And, and you can actually see as they've taken the photographs that Sheila's nightdress moves. Yeah. During taking those photographs. In next week's programme, Yvonne and Emma continue the conversation and include the evidence from multiple sources about how Sheila could have and had hurt her children in the past, which is in contrast to the friend of hers who supported her innocence on the programme. Other issues which feature are the facts surrounding Ainsley's knowledge that foster care was on the agenda for Nicholas and Daniel, why Brett Collins cannot be believed, the truth about the deal Julie Mugford struck with the news of the world, and her immunity from prosecution, and the evidence Mindhouse chose to ignore, which undermines the Crown's case, including blood and DNA facts. If you'd like to join our mailing list for the latest updates on the case as they happen, please email us via our website, www.jeremy-bamba.co.uk.